the book of Proverbs, and we've been sort of drawing out some of the key themes of Proverbs, and today we're going to be looking at what it says about alcohol. You might find it helpful to turn in your Bibles. There are two places in Proverbs where we are based this morning. It's on page 655 of the Bibles. It's Proverbs 20, and then we'll also nip across to Proverbs 23, a few verses later. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. And it introduces us to the fact that alcohol profoundly affects how we act. And in particular, when we've drunk enough of it, it will often mean that we act with aggression or with hostility to other people. Uh, Even though when we are drunk, it feels like we are seeing things clearly. We are, in a sense, we're throwing off inhibition or restriction. Uh, We're acting as we would always want to act. If you've ever been in a room with someone who is very drunk and you've not been, uh, you will know that, of course, that's not the case. And often it will in a sense, it will increase our aggression and hostility to others. The verse concludes by saying that alcohol deceives. It leads us astray into behavior that is self-destructive or is destructive of others. And if you go across to Proverbs 23, which is a couple of pages on, page 660, at the top of the page on the left, beginning at verse 29, Those opening questions that Lynn was doing in the reading have real cumulative effect. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Well, that could be almost anybody. Who has strife? Who has complaints? Well, that's that's many of us. Who has needless bruises? Well, that's beginning to, in a sense, narrow at the angle a bit. And then finally, who has bloodshot eyes? Oh, yes. This is talking about people that drink too much. The focus here is on alcohol, again, being deceptive. That's the key thought in this passage. Um, Alcohol, in all its forms, appears alluring. And of course, we now live in a culture where millions and millions of pounds are spent uh, every week on uh, showing just how alluring each brand uh, of alcoholic drink uh, is. It appears alluring. It tastes wonderful. And there is the thrill and the excitement that happens when we first drink alcohol. And so, but that's, in a sense, the sense in which it is deceptive because the way it looks, the way it tastes, the way it smells, the immediate impact that it has, in a sense, is not followed through or is followed through in a very different way because it masks destructive results. And the rest of that passage, in a sense, uh, lists those those, uh, results. The first is confusion, the confusion of someone who's drunk. Uh, Then uh, there's talk about the hangover. Uh, Then there's that recognition that when we drink too much, uh, you try to go to sleep, you put your head on the pillow, and it feels like you're out on a force nine gale with the pillow sort of going up and down. Uh, And then there is the drunk's bravado of the drunk being able to do anything, take on anybody, body, uh, achieve anything. That's the bravado we get when we drink too much. And then finally, uh, addiction. When can I have another drink? And so the point of that second proverb is that sparkling red wine, 
is the example there. You can substitute it with your drink of choice. Sparkling red wine looks wonderful in the cup. It goes down so smoothly, but it represents only the tip of the iceberg. That's something more sinister, more destructive lurks at beneath. Now, I want to, uh, it says, widen out uh, our view now and think about how that would uh, compare or equate uh, with a more modern view. And actually, uh, there is a huge overlap. Uh, did you know that in our country, the richest 20% of people, that's quite likely to include some of us here, the richest 20% uh, regularly uh, drink uh, excessively. And the more wealthy you are, the more likely it is that that's the case. 25% of adults uh, will drink more than the recommended weekly limit, uh, which is 14 units for women and 21 for men. I know there's some talk about whether those are useful or not, but that's uh, an interesting uh, angle. Excessive drinking is uh, linked to a whole lot of things that damage our society. Uh, domestic abuse is one. And in my 30 years of uh, being a pastor, uh, time and time again, when there has been a situation of domestic abuse, I reckon 60, 70% of the time, alcohol has had a, an important part, a destructive part to play in that. But alcohol is also linked to absenteeism at work. Uh, if you go to a, when any one of our wonderful A&E departments at the weekends, you will see very clearly the impact of uh, overdrinking there. If you live in a family where there is one or more serious habitual drinker, it will almost certainly be having a profoundly negative impact on uh, the family. Uh, excessive drinking also leads to high blood pressure, heart disease, strokes, liver disease, cancer. There's also some evidence, and this should just make us pause, that excessive drinking increases with age. So the older ones of us here who think, oh, those drunken louts and layabouts who drink too much at the weekend, I see them in the city center. Well, statistically, we're more likely to drink excessively as we get older. So we're living in a culture that does not contain wisdom on this issue. Uh, there is actually some evidence that millennials and the generation coming in behind millennials uh, actually value self-control and are much more aware of the dangers of uh, drinking alcohol. Whether they sustain that or not, we will see. Now, I want just to step back a tiny bit and think about a whole Bible view. Uh, we've looked at two uh, chunks of verse in Proverbs. We just stand back and uh, look at a bigger picture. Uh, in the Bible, wine is uh, most often a symbol of abundance and of God's generosity. And so therefore wine, uh, which was probably the thing that was drunk most often in the Old Testament uh, times, is, is, in a sense, is part of that picture. And so it's part of the picture of joy, of feasting, of celebrating, of the harvest. And so it's something to be received gladly and enjoyed. Although we should note that in those days, wine had a far lower alcohol content than it has now, and they didn't really have spirits in quite the same way that we do. I just want to note, because I know there's at least one church warden in the room, this is just by way of 
interesting historical fact that the great reformer Calvin, who was in Geneva in the 16th century, uh, successfully stipulated that his annual stipend included seven barrels of wine, just by way of interesting historical aside. There is no outright command not to drink alcohol in the Bible. So nowhere does it say we shouldn't drink alcohol. And you will remember that Jesus' first miracle uh, recorded in John's Gospel at Cana at the wedding was this kind of unnecessarily extravagant turning of gallons and gallons of water into wine uh, to uh, help finish well uh, a wedding feast that had already been going on for a, nearly a week. You know, so it, you know, it, the, the, I think some wine had already been consumed uh, at that party, uh, but Jesus chose, of course, there was deeper things going on that he was pointing to, but he chose to use wine, as it is in the Old Testament, as, a, as a, the symbol of abundance and joy and God's generosity. Jesus then uses and asks us to use wine as a memorial of his sacrifice on the cross, uh, building on uh, the old covenant. Uh, the New Testament features wine as both an antiseptic uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan puts wine and oil onto the wounds of the person that's been beaten up. Uh, the New Testament also features wine as a digestive aid. Uh, so Paul, writing to Timothy, who's uh, young but a, a bit poorly, uh, says to him, take a little wine for your stomach, uh, Timothy. But there are plenty of warnings, including the one we had in Proverbs, against drunkenness. Uh, so against drunkenness rather than drinking alcohol. Uh, particularly the excessive uh, drinking of alcohol is self-destructive, uh, partly physically but also morally and also relationally. And so the question really becomes, it's, it's who we are and what we do when we are drunk and what it does to our impact, uh, what it, how it impacts our witness to Christ that is important. In 1 Timothy 3, Christian leaders are required, amongst other things, to be people who are self-controlled in our drinking. Now, it's interesting that never in the, my whole process to uh, being ordained as a vicar and then being appointed in lots of different places, has anyone ever said to me, uh, Simon, tell me about your drinking? Uh, it's not, in a sense, required, but I was talking to Brian after this, uh, the nine o'clock service, and he was saying, actually, interestingly, in, in Uganda, where our team have just been, it, it would be much more of an issue of concern and of interest. There have been moments in more recent history when Christians have taken a stronger position, in a sense, than the Bible takes, but I would argue they've taken it for very good reasons. So if you go back a couple of hundred years, John Wesley campaigned vociferously against the effects of drinking gin on London's poor. That was in the 18th century. If you know, tens of thousands of rural poor had moved into London without their homes, without their communities, and without the weak beer that they were used to drinking at home. And then they were completely taken in and then undone uh, by this new, uh, shiny, highly alcoholic drink, uh, gin. And gin trapped 
thousands of people in dire poverty and brought many others to an early grave. And so for Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, uh, this became a matter of social justice, uh, that it, it, this was simply oppression. It was, uh, in a sense, it was unfair. It was unjust what it was doing to people. And so he led a concerted effort against the impact of gin. It's interesting also, at the same time, and inspired by exactly the same facts, some of the big brewers that are still around today, Guinness in particular, the Guinness family were all very strong Christians who were equally appalled at what was happening in London. Uh, in particular, and so it created and introduced Guinness uh, as a low-alcohol alternative uh, to uh, gin. Uh, so there have been Christians at the forefront uh, of all of this, deliberate, concerted efforts to reverse the highly destructive effects of excessive drinking on health, on marriages, on families, on people's income, and their moral and their spiritual well-being. And all of these things have had a profoundly positive effect uh, along with movements such as Alcoholics Anonymous and their 12-step program. All of those things are trying to highlight what we read in Proverbs, that the alcohol, uh, although wonderful in one sense, is deceptive and it is destructive. And so many Christians since the 18th century have concluded that abstinence from drinking alcohol, not drinking any at all, uh, alongside continuing support and help, is the best way uh, to live. Now, on top of that, we happen to live in Northern Europe, a, a part of the world where with our long, dark winters, uh, we have been the center of excessive drinking for hundreds of years. So if you go back to medieval times, uh, the, the English uh, have always been drinking more excessively than other nations. And so within that culture that we live in now as Christians, we are, I think, quite quickly mocked or dismissed as killjoys for saying that moderation in drinking or abstinence from drinking are the best ways to live. And often the ultimate insult is to call somebody a Puritan, even though the English Puritans were in fact temperate, moderate drinkers of beer and wine. Uh, they weren't teetotalers, uh, but they were people uh, who managed uh, to, to kind of live what they'd always aimed to do, which is a, a kind of a godly life with contentment and moderation. And they had learned uh, to do that well. Now, my understanding of the whole view of the Bible is that wine and other alcoholic drinks are portrayed as things that we receive gladly and that we are encouraged to enjoy in moderation. Uh, but alongside that stream, we also have to hear uh, the, the fact that alcohol is fickle, it's deceptive, and it's also highly destructive. And so in, sense, we, in balancing or holding those two truths, we take the time to learn wisdom and to learn self-control and then to model that in our families and in our friendship groups because we clearly live in a culture which has very little wisdom on this issue. We are not commanded to abstain from alcohol, but many of us 
if stats alone are true, many of us will need to confront the truth that we drink too much alcohol. And in drinking too much alcohol, we hurt ourselves and we hurt those close to us and we also undermine our witness to Christ. Therefore, if, if that is you, if you're in the drinking too much camp and various stats say that might be up to a quarter of us, we should consider stop drinking altogether. And if that is you, you need help. You need to tell somebody. Uh, you probably need to tell somebody today or very soon because alcohol is a deceiving, destructive force. And once it gets hold of you, it doesn't willingly let go. And you will always want just one more. Amen. Simon. Well, that was quite a sobering um, sermon. <laughs>